0: Chapter Fourteen of Flemington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Flemington by Violet Jacob. Chapter Fourteen. In Search of Sensation. When Skirling Wattie had delivered his letter to Flemington on the foregoing day, He watched the young man out of sight with disgust, and cursed him for a high-handed jackanapes. He was not used to be treated in such a fashion. There was that about Archie which took his fancy, for the suggestion of stir and movement that went everywhere with Flemington pleased him, and roused his unfailing curiosity. The beggar's most pleasant characteristic was his interest in everybody and everything, his worst, the unseasonable brutality with which he gratified it. A livelihood gained by his own powers of cajolery and persistence had left him without a spark of respect for his kind. He would have been a man of prowess had his limbs been intact, and destiny, in robbing his body of activity, had transferred that quality to his brains. His huge shoulders and broad fists The arrogant male glare of his roving eye might well hint at the wisdom of providence in keeping his fear of action to the narrow limits of a go-cart. Those who look for likenesses between people and animals would be reminded by him of a wild boar. It was almost shocking to anyone with a sense of fitness to hear the mellow and touching voice, rich with the indescribable quiver of pathos and tragedy, that proceeded from his bristly jaws when he sang. The world that had conjured up before imaginative listeners was a world of twilight, of stars that drew a trail of tear-dimmed luster about the ancient haunted places of the country, stars that had shone on battlefields and on the partings of lovers, that had looked on the raids of the border and had stood over the dark border towers among the peat. It was a strange truth that in the voice of this coarse and humble vagabond lay the whole distinctive spirit of the national poetry of Scotland. In the last few months his employment had added new zest to his life, for it was not only the pay he received for his occasional carrying of letters that was welcome to him. His bold and guileful soul delighted in the occupation for its own sake. He was something of a student of human nature, as all those who live by their wits must be of necessity, and the small services he was called upon to give brought him into contact with new varieties of men. Archie was new to him, and, in the beggar's opinion, immeasurably more amusing than any one he had seen yet. In modern parlance he would be called a sportsman, this low bred old ruffian who had lost his legs, and who was left to the mercy of his own ingenuity. And to the efforts of the five dumb animals which supplemented his loss he had all honor to him kept his love of life and its chances through his misfortune though he did not know it himself it was his recognition of the same spirit in flemington that made him appreciate the young man his services to the state had not been important up to the present time a few letters carried a little information collected had been the extent of his usefulness. But though he was not in their regular employ, the authorities were keeping a favorable eye on him, for he had so far proved himself capable, close-mouthed, and a very miracle of local knowledge. He sat in his cart looking resentfully after Flemington, between the stems of the alders and the lattice of their golden-brown leaves, and though the one word tossed over the rider's shoulders did not tell him much, he determined he would not lose sight of Archie if he could help it. Brecon might mean anything from a night's lodging to a lengthened stay, but he would follow him as far as he dared and set about discovering his movements. Skirling Waddy had friends in Brecon, as he had in most places round about, and certain bolt holes of his own wherein he could always find shelter for himself and his dogs. But he did not mean to trust himself nearer than these refuges to Lord Balnillo, at any rate not for a few days. Chance had relieved him of the letter for which he was responsible sooner than he expected, and at present he was a free man. He roused his team, tucked his pipes into their corner of the cart, and guiding himself carefully between the trees issued from the thicket like some ribald vision of goblinry escaped from the world of folklore. He turned towards Brecon and set off for the town at a brisk trot, the yellow dog straining at his harness and his comrades taking their pace from him. Every inch of the road was known to Wadi, every tree and tuft, every rut and hole and as there were plenty of these last, he bumped and swung along in a way that would have dislocated the bones of a lighter person. The violent roughness of his progress was what served him for exercise and kept him in health. There were not many houses near the highway, but the children playing round the doors of the few he passed hailed him with shouts, and he answered them as he answered everyone with his familiar wag of the head. When he entered Brecon and rolled past the high circular shaft of its round tower, the world made way for him with a grin, and when it was not agile enough to please him, he heralded himself with a shrill note from the chanter, which he had unscrewed from his pipes. Business was business with him. He meant to lie in the town to-night, but he was anxious to get on to Flemington's tracks before the scent was cold. He drove to the Swan Inn and entered the yard, and there he had the satisfaction of seeing Archie's horse being rubbed down with a wisp of straw. Its rider, he made out, had left the inn on foot half an hour earlier. So, with his meager clue, he sought the streets and the company of the idlers, haunting their thievish corners, to whom the passing stranger and what might be made out of him were the best interests of the day. By the time the light was failing, he had traced Flemington down to the river, where he had been last seen crossing the bridge. The beggar was a good deal surprised. He could not imagine what was carrying Archie away from the place. In the dusk, he descended the steep streets, running down to the Esk, and slackening his pace, took out a short, stout pair of crutches that he kept beside him, using them as brakes on either side of the cart. People who saw Waddy for the first time would stand, spellbound, to watch the incredible spectacle of his passage through a town. But to the inhabitants of Brecon he was too familiar a sight for anything but the natural widening of the mouth that his advent would produce from pure force of habit. The lights lit here and there were beginning to repeat themselves in the water, and men were returning to their houses after the day's work as he stopped his cart and sent out that surest of all attractions, the first notes of the Todd into the gathering mists of the riverside. By ones and twos, the details of a sympathetic audience drew together round him as his voice rose over the sliding rush of the Esk. Idlers on the bridge leaned over the gray arches as the sound came to them above the tongue of the little rapid that babbled as it lost itself in the shadow of the woods downstream. Then the pipes took up their tune. Jests and roars of laughter oiled the springs of generosity, and the good prospects of supper and a bed began to smile upon the beggar. When darkness set in, he turned his wheels towards a shed that a publican had put at his disposal for the night, and he and his dogs laid themselves down to rest in its comfortable straw. The yellow cur relieved from his harness stole closer and closer to his master and lay with his jowl against the pipes. Presently, Waddy's dirty hand went out and sought the coarse head of his servant. Dog, he was muttering as he went to sleep. Perhaps in all the grim gray little Scottish town, no living creature closed its eyes more contentedly than the poor cur whose head was pillowed in paradise because of the touch that was on it. Morning found man and dogs out betimes and migrating to the heart of the town. Waddy was one who liked to get an early draft from the Fountainhead of News, to be beforehand, so to speak, with his day. The Swan Inn was his goal, and he had not got up the hill towards it when his practiced eye, wise in other men's movements, saw that the world was hurrying along, drawn by some magnet stronger than its legitimate work. The women were running out of their houses, too. As he toiled up the steep incline, a figure burst from the mouth of a wind and came flying down the middle of the narrow way. "'Hey, what ails ye, man? What's a hind ye?' he cried, stopping his cart and spreading out his arms as though to embrace the approaching man. The other paused. He was a pale, foolish-looking youth whose progress seemed as little responsible as that of a discharged missile. "'There's Fecton!' he yelled, apparently addressing the air in general. "'Fecton? Ay, there's Fecton at Montrose this hour, sign. "'Div ye no hear them, ye deef muckle swine?' continued the youth, rendered abusive by excitement. The two stared in each other's faces, as those do who listen. Dull and distant, a muffled boom drove in from the coast. A second throb followed it. The youth dropped his raised hands and fled on. Waddy turned his dogs and set off down the hill without more delay. Here was the reason that Archie had left the town. It was in expectation of this present disturbance on the coast that he had slipped out of Brecon by the less frequented road round the basin. He scurried down the hill, scattering the children playing in the kennel with loud imprecations and threats. He sped over the bridge, and was soon climbing the rise on the farther side of the Esk. If there was fighting going on, he would make shift to see it, and Montrose would be visible from most of his road. Soon he would get a view of the distant harbor, and would see the smoke of the guns whose throats continued to trouble the air also he would get forward unmolested for there would be the width of the basin between himself and lord balnillo he breathed his team when he reached the top of the hill for he was a scientific driver and he had some way to go he cast a glance down at the place he had left rejoicing that no one had followed him out of it when he was on his own errands he did not like company preferring like most independent characters to develop his intentions in the perfect freedom of silence. When he drew near enough to distinguish the venture, a dark spot under the lee of Ferryden, he saw the white puffs of smoke bursting from her and the answering clouds rising from the island. There had been no time to hear the rumors of the morning before he met the pale young man, or he would have learned that a body of Prince Charles's men under Ferrier had left Brechin last night whilst he lay sound asleep in the straw among his dogs, he could not imagine where the assailants had come from, who were pounding at the ship from Inch. Braic. The fields sloped away from him to the water, leaving an uninterrupted view. He pressed on to the crossroads at which he must turn along the basin shore from there on, the conformation of the land and the frequent clumps of trees which shut out both town and harbor from his sight until he came parallel with the island. He halted at the turning for a last look at the town. The firing had ceased, which reconciled him a little to the eclipse of the distant spectacle. Then he drove on again, unconscious of the sight he was to miss, for unsuspected by him, as by the crowd thronging the quays of Montrose, The French frigate was creeping up the coast, and she made her appearance in the river mouth just as Waddy began the tamer stage of his journey. The yellow cur and his companions toiled along at their steady trot, their red tongues hanging. The broadside from the French ship rang inland, and the beggar groaned, urging them with curses and chosen abuse. His intimate knowledge of the neighborhood led him to steer for the identical spot on which Flemington, crouched in his wind-bush, had looked down on the affray, and he hoped devoutly that he might reach that point of vantage while there was still something to be seen from it. Silence had settled on the strait once more. Not far in front a man was coming into sight, the first creature Waddy had seen since leaving Brecon, whose face was turned from the coast. He seemed a person of irresolute mind, as well as of vacillating feet for every few yards he would stop hesitating before resuming his way the beggar cursed him heartily for a drunkard for though he had a lively sympathy with backsliders of that kind he knew that accurate information was the last thing to be expected from them before the wayfarers had halved the distance between them the man stopped and sitting down by the tumble-down stone dyke at the roadside, dropped his head in his hands. As the cart passed him a few minutes later, he raised a ghastly face, and Skirling Waddy pulled up, astounded, with a loud and profane exclamation as he recognized Flemington. Though Archie had been glad to escape from the beggar yesterday, he was now thankful to see anyone who might pass for a friend. He tried to smile, but his eyes closed again, and he put out his hand towards the dike. "'I'm so devilish giddy,' he said. Waddy looked at the cut on his head and the stains of blood on his coat. you have gotten a rare dunt," he observed. Archie, who seemed to himself to be slipping off the rounded edge of the world, made no reply. The other sat eyeing him with perplexity and some impatience. He did not know what he wanted most, to get to Montrose or to get news out of Flemington. The dogs lay down in the mud. Flemington kept his hand to his eyes for a minute and then lifted his head again. The ship has surrendered, he said, speaking with difficulty. I have been on the high ground watching. She struck her flag, a French frigate. He stopped again. The road on which he sat was whirling down into illimitable space. The other took in his plight. His coat, torn in his struggle with Logie, was full of wind prickles, and the wet mud was caked on his legs. His soft, silky hair was flattened on his forehead. ye have been feckin' yourself, my lad,' said Waddy. "'Where ha' ye been?' "'There's a rebel force on Inch Braic, said Archie with another effort. I have been on the island. Yes, I've been fighting. A man recognized me. A man I saw at On the Road by Balnillo. They will be hunting me soon, and I have papers on me they must not find, and money, all the money I have. God knows how I am to get away. I must get to Aberbrothock. What was she saying about the French? In broken sentences, and between his fits of giddiness, Archie explained the situation and the harbor, and the beggar listened, his bristly brows knit, his bonnet thrust back on his bald head, and his own best course of action grew clear to him. Montrose would soon be full of rebel soldiers, and though these might be generous audiences when merry with wine and loose upon the streets, their presence would make him no safer from Lord Balnillo. Waddy knew that the judge's loyalty was beginning to be suspected, and that he might well have friends among the prince's officers, whose arrival might attract him to the town. And to serve Archie would be a good recommendation for himself with his employers, to say nothing of any private gratitude that the young man might feel. Bide you where you are, he exclaimed, rousing his dogs. Lad, I'll hike to carry ye out to this and dod we'll need a, our time not far from them a spring was trickling from the fields dropping in a spurt through the damp mosses between the unpointed stones of the dyke. the obedient dogs drew their master close to it and he filled a battered pannikin that he took from among his small collection of necessities in the bottom of the cart he returned with the water and when archie had bathed his head in its icy coldness "'He drew a whiskey bottle from its snug lair under the bagpipes "'and forced him to drink. "'It was half full, for the friendly publican "'had replenished his store before they parted on the foregoing night. "'As the liquid warmed his stomach, Archie raised his head slowly. "'I believe I can walk now,' he said at last. "'You'll need to try,' observed Waddy dryly. "'You'll no can ride with me. "'Come awa, Maester Flemington.' Will I gie ye a skellock o' the pipes to help ye a "'In God's name, no!' cried Archie, whose head was splitting. He struggled on to his feet. The whisky was beginning to overcome the giddiness, and he knew that every minute spent on the high road was a risk. The beggar was determined to go to Aberbrothnock with Archie. He did not consider him in a fit state to be left alone. And he counselled him to leave the road at once and to cut diagonally across the high ground, whilst he himself, debarred by his wheels from going across country, drove back to the crossroads and took the one to the coast. By doing this, the pair would meet, Flemington having taken one side of the triangle, while Wattie had traversed the other two. They were to await each other at a spot indicated by the latter, where a bit of moor encroached on the way. As Watty turned again to retrace his road, he watched his friend toiling painfully up the slanting ground among the uneven tussocks of grass with some anxiety. Archie labored along, pausing now and again to rest, but he managed to gain the summit of the ridge. Watty saw his figure shorten from the feet up as he crossed the skyline, till his head and shoulders dropped out of sight like the top sails of a ship over a clear horizon. He was disappointed at having missed the sight of so much good fighting. Archie's account had been rather incoherent, but he gathered that the rebels were in possession of the harbor and that a French ship had come in in the middle of the affray full of rebel troops. He shouted the information to the few people he met. He turned southward at the crossroads. Behind him lay the panorama of the basin and the spread of the rolling country. Brecon, the Esk, the woods of Monrumman Moor, stretching out to far and northward, the Grampians lying with their long shoulders in the autumn light. His beat for begging was down there across the water and round about the country between town and town. But though his activities were in that direction, he knew Aberbrothock and the coast well, for he'd been born in a fishing village in one of its creeks, and had spent his early years at sea. He would be able to put Archie in the way of a passage to Leith without much trouble, and without unnecessary explanations. Archie had money on him and could be trusted to pay his way. He was the first to reach the trysting place, and he drew up, glad to give his team a rest. At last he saw Archie coming along with the slow, careful gait "'of a man who was obliged to consider each step of his way separately "'in order to get on at all. "'Sit ye doon!" he exclaimed as they met. "'If once I sit down, I am lost,' said Archie. "'Come on.' "'He started along the road with the same dogged step, "'the beggar keeping alongside. "'They had gone about half a mile when Flemington clutched at a wayside bush "'and then slid to the ground in a heap.' Waddy pulled up, dismayed, and scanned their surroundings. To let him lie there by the road was out of the question. He could not tell how much his head had been injured, but he knew enough to be sure that exposure and cold might bring a serious illness on a man in his state. He did not understand that the whiskey he had given Archie was the worst possible thing for him. To the beggar it was the sovereign remedy for all trouble of mind or body. He cursed his own circumscribed energies. There was no one in sight. The nearest habitation was a little farmhouse on the skirts of the moor, with one tiny window in its gable end making a dark spot, high under the roof. Watty turned his wheels reluctantly towards it. Unwilling though he was to draw attention to his companion, there was no choice. End of Chapter Fourteen